Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 139th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Michelle Clark. Michelle is a Senior Portfolio Manager for Acropolis Investment Management, an independent RIA based in the St. Louis area that oversees nearly $1.1 billion of assets under management for more than 800 clients. What's unique about Michelle, though, is that until very recently, she ran her own independent hourly financial planning practice and only recently decided to tuck in, or as she puts it, to plug in to a larger firm so that she could worry less about the hassles of being a business owner from bookkeeping to IT and simply focus more on what she enjoys the most, which is connecting with and servicing her clients. In this episode, we talk in depth about Michelle's somewhat non-traditional journey through the advisory industry, from starting out selling mutual funds door-to-door with Edward Jones, to switching to Charles Schwab and becoming a regional investor education specialist until she was so successful that the travel overwhelmed her and she decided to switch and become a branch financial consultant instead, and then growing her base of Schwab private clients so large that it once again overwhelmed her to the point that she decided to go out on her own to structure the practice the way that she wanted only to once again, over the span of 10 years, grow to the point that the business was consuming too much of her life and to make the decision to plug into Acropolis to yet again back off when the advisory practice got too big and rebalance both her business and the work she's doing in it. We also talk about how Michelle built her independent firm, from the way she structured her project-based fees in her hourly business to the challenges she discovered when trying to properly price renewal plans for ongoing clients, the trick she used to begin to systematize the processes and procedures in her firm as it grew, and what she learned about the changing ways that clients are finding a financial advisor in today's environment by meticulously tracking her own sources of new business for nearly a decade. And be certain to listen to the end, where Michelle shares her own tips on how to stay lean when starting an advisory firm, the importance of developing an expertise or specialization so that you don't have to rely on local business development opportunities and can can attract clients no matter where they are, and the inevitable challenges of growth in the early years of starting out on your own, even when you're experienced in business development. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Michelle Clark. Welcome, Michelle Clark, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. I am thrilled to be here. I'm I'm really excited about today's episode and the discussion with you. We've had a few guests on lately that have, uh, as I put it, kind of done done all the different industry channels. You know, we had someone on who started in the insurance world and then went to the independent broker dealer and then became a hybrid broker dealer and then ultimately became an independent RIA, which I feel like is the kind of the the migration path that a lot of advisors have followed over the past twenty something years, and you have followed what I think is is kind of a very different non-traditional path, or at least non-traditional by, uh, I'll call it, uh, industry standards, that you actually spent much of the formative years of your career at Charles Schwab in a, 
you know, in sort of a, a retail financial consultant role in the Schwab system. Then you actually lived in the hourly model as an independent for a number of years before more recently tucking into a large firm and shifting your business model as well, again. And so in a world where so many of us have kind of gone from insurance sales to mutual fund sales to hybrid AUM to RA model, and you've done this world of Schwab financial consultant to hourly planner and onwards from there is just a a very non-traditional path. I, I think probably one that's going to be a lot more traditional in the future, but certainly not so traditional historically. And so I'm I'm just really excited to chat through your journey, what you've learned, kind of your insights and experiences in all of these different models that are different than what most other advisors followed. I'm excited to be here. And it's it's been an interesting journey, like you say. It's a little different than others. I, I attend a lot of conferences and chapter meetings here locally for different financial organizations. And it's not a path that I run into very often, but I do think it's a path that gave me a, a lot of excellent background upon which to build. So, so can you talk to us a little bit about this journey? I, I know you started in the business in the, in the nineties. So you, you've been doing this for, for 25 odd years. So were you straight into financial services and a financial advisor, like out of school? Was this always what you wanted to do? Like how, how did you get started and land in the industry? Well, it it is what I did straight out of school. It wasn't what I always wanted to do. I, I had thought I was going to become a uh, professor. I majored in psychology and actually a little bit of theater. So we have a similar background. And the final semester of college, I had been doing some uh, research under a professor and I actually got to teach a class as an undergrad at Purdue, which is um, unusual. And now that I have a student in college, I think, oh, goodness, I can't believe. I uh, wonder what those parents would have thought if they knew that they were paying tuition <laughs> and an undergrad was teaching their kids. But I, I loved it. So I liked the teaching, but I didn't, I didn't want to uh, to go down that path. And I decided at the last minute. So I was I was sitting with my mom and I said, you know, I just don't know what I want to do. And, and she said, well, your uncle always liked working at a bank. So I went to work for a bank right out of college. So I've always been in financial services. But I really got bored very quickly with just the, you know, you, you can learn it all when it comes to just learning about the savings accounts, the checking accounts, car loans, et cetera. There's only so many different products available at your average retail bank, like at some point, just I know all the different things. And then I would imagine the conversations just become very, very rote and boring. Like people come in and you figure out whether they need a checking account or a savings account or a loan. And then you do the thing and then you help the next person in line. Right. And you cross sell. That was a big thing, cross selling the other products. But boy, it just, you know, it didn't take long for me to feel like I, I know all about these products. And they recognized that, you know, I was from out of town and I, I like to learn. And so they tapped me on the shoulder for a special project. This was back when banks were not allowed to do banking outside the state borders. And they were going to roll out selling mutual funds and annuities all across the state to all the branches. And they needed somebody to, to get licensed, learn about it, and then go to all the branches and teach the branch managers and the financial service representatives all about this, get them licensed and, and get them selling these products. And they asked me if I wanted to do this with one other lady. And, and yes, of course. Well, that was my first taste of the investment industry. And I never looked back. So I, I kind of vision this like this is, you know, the, the 90s as 
you know, mutual funds are on the rise. The independent broker dealer model is on the rise. And, you know, just there was a massive, massive industry shift into mutual funds all in the 90s at once. I think the adjusted for kind of inflation and market size, the the mutual fund shift in the 90s was bigger than the ETF shift of this decade. Like just the whole world went mutual fund all at once. And it cropped up in in broker dealers, it cropped up in insurance companies that really ramped up their insurance broker dealer subsidiaries and started showing up in banks and credit unions. Yes. Yes. It it hit the world <laughs> like wildfire and just spread like crazy. And that was in ninety three and very exciting. And then well, I wanted more. You know, I wanted I wanted it all. And I was talking with a friend of mine. Oh, and so at the bank, I wanted to get fully licensed and, and they really were supporting that. But they said, we only have seven brokers for the whole um, area. And, you know, these are a bunch of old guys and they're never going to leave. But my mentor within the bank said, you know, just keep studying, keep studying. We'll support you to take the seven, but, you know, you won't you know, necessarily be able to be a broker until one of these folks leaves. And I was talking with a friend of mine and I was telling them this, my tale of woe, you know, I, I really want to be a broker, but, you know, there's no spot for me at the bank and I love the bank. And, and she said, well, I work at Edward Jones and, and there's a whole department just to try to recruit women brokers. I said, tell me more. <laughs> so, uh, so I ended up going to Edward Jones and the- and it- and it's worth noting like you're you're based in St. Louis area which is like Edward Jones HQ Central. Yes, yes, Edward Jones headquarters and and I'll tell you I actually loved knocking on the doors and meeting people and and I you know I hear a lot of people say oh you know I worked for Jones I hated knocking the doors. I'm one of those rare few that loved it. I mean I got a lot of new accounts. So I, I all right I just I got to pause you there to talk about that further. So you liked knocking on the doors. I and, loved it. All right. So what are you finding so enjoyable that <laughs> very few other people seem to enjoy? Like, why Why does this work for you? It did. I just... Now, the, here's, the, here's the added kicker. Most of when I was knocking on doors was in the summer. I was wearing a suit. And back then, you wore pantyhose and heels walking around subdivisions miles a day in 100-degree weather. I remember one day I came home and my I told my husband, you know, I, I knocked on the doors today. He said, I heard on the radio today that cows were dying in the field. It was so hot. <laughs> So you're walking door to door to sell in a world where literally animals are killing over dead from the excessive heat. Yes, yes. People would be offering me glasses of water. Do you need water? I'm like, I'm fine. But I loved it. It's part of that like, very St. Louis, like Midwest welcoming culture. You would look parched. Would you like a glass of water? Yes. You're, you're here to, to sell me some stocks, but would you like some water? I just like hearing people's stories and connecting with people. So it just was a really good fit that way for me. So. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. You you know go back to your office and you'd, you'd have your list of folks you met and and you you know reconnect with them and it was good, but you know I it wasn't the right fit for me. I, I'm just wondering, like, was there something different about what it was like cold knocking now versus then? Like, was it a bit more accepted, or did you just? still get a zillion people that would slam the door in your face and you've just completely rolled that off and you're only loving the few people who said yes and invited you in for 
story in a blissful glass of water. Yes. Uh, well, I did get bit by a dog a couple times. Yes, you did get your uh, door slammed in your face. I will tell you, there did was they one stick man. The dog on you, or just kind of accidentally, the dog got loose. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah. So nothing on purpose. Nothing. You know, it wasn't a whistle and a, and a running down the street, you know, and right away from the from the house. But yeah, we we had you know, the negative too, but not very much. I don't know if it was a different time, a different era, but I don't know. So what was the what was the pitch back then? I mean, was it just literally like? Hey, what are you doing with your portfolios? Have you ever heard of this thing called a mutual fund? Like what what exactly is the pitch when you're knocking in neighborhoods? You know, I don't recall. I will tell you this, and maybe you should have known this about me before you invited me on your podcast, but I'm not the most silver-tongued person. So, what people like about me generally is not that I'm the most eloquent speaker, it's just that I'm very genuine. So I, if there was a pitch, I probably didn't say anything that was memorized. Probably just talked, told them why I was there because I'm a very frank person and see if there's anything I can help them with. I did go in with the most open heart and wanting to help people. Um, and that was part of what I became a little discouraged about was when I'd get together with other brokers and I, I discovered, because I was very naive and young, because this was only about four or five years out of college, I discovered, oh, wait, not everyone is in this to help people. <laughs> and that was eye-opening and, and discouraging. So, so you're selling mutual funds door to door, and and I'm presuming like this is, this is the commission based model of the of the time. I'm trying to remember. Like I think funds are paying five point seven five percent upfront for A shares at the time. Like that, and that's your world. Just yes, that, and then uh, you know the I, there's annuities could have been a product that that people sold at the time and. I don't know that I sold annuities, but uh, lots of opened lots of college accounts for people, and you know retirement accounts, IRAs. I was big on let's put money away every month and get you set up doing that. And interesting, and got traction with it. Yeah, yeah. Now keep in mind, I was there a year, but uh, in that training program, they have a great training program. You know, they they keep bringing you back into the office, and then they parade you across the stage and give you. I remember I got a T-shirt once. It was like uh, if you open thirteen accounts by the next time you came back, you got this T-shirt with big boxing gloves on it, and it was said something like Ted's Fighters or something. Because you're a fighter in the branch manager. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Okay. So I remember getting one of those, and so each time you go back. If you've reached some milestone, you got some trinket of some kind, and they prayed you across the stage. Everybody's clapping for you, but I'm sure the people in the seats are like, ah. <laughs> but every time you came back, there were fewer and fewer people in your training class because it's tough. It's tough. It's a tough way to go. So you got, and you got drawn to them because they had a, a women's initiative for hiring female brokers. Yes. Yes. Interesting. Just the just the appeal that they were willing to be supportive. Like, was there was there a particular thing they were doing, or just the care enough to care about me was a, a, enough to draw you in at least to to get started with them and leave the bank where you had to wait for someone to die to get a job. Yes, probably that. I was too naive to really know to, to look around at the time. 
you know, I had a friend who worked there. She showed me around. Uh, they did have a really neat women's group, and then we met on a regular basis. You know, they they gave us one piece of advice that I still use to this day, and I call it the same thing. Because we were, you know, a woman walking around and getting invited into strangers' houses, <laughs> so they said, uh, always file a flight plan each day. So, uh, like, leave a note on your desk, you know, what your your plan is, what street you're going to go to, and what order, in case something happens, you know, they, they can track you down. So I'll, I'll still do that. Like if I get the heebie-jeebies about something, or if I'm, you know, going to be going to an area of town I haven't been before or something, sometimes I'll be, uh, I'll tell my family, I'm going, you know, first I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to go here, and then I'm going to go there, following my flight plan. So I just got, so the whole like, hey, you're, you're going to sell mutual funds door to door, and you need to file a flight plan in case you go into a house and don't come back again. That didn't freak you out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it didn't. I, you know, there's something I've always said. People will ask me, you know, how did you last this long? So many women don't. And I've always told them you have to have a tender heart and a thick skin. Um, and I think you do have to kind of have a, have to have a tougher temperament or at least did. I think there's newer paths where you don't have to be, have to have that thicker temperament. But I think that it didn't scare me because of the temperament I had. So, so you said ultimately you were only with with EJ for a year. So, what what happened that led to a shift? Then was it, you know, did uh, eventually you were one of the people who didn't quite make the numbers and didn't come back, or or you you chose your way out of the system? I chose my way out of the system. I was in the green. They have this. They did then green, yellow, red system, and and I was still in the green. But I was going to these meetings and, and hearing how people would talk about clients. And, and I'm sure it's totally different now, but then I just didn't care for it. I, I can remember in particular one meeting, and it, it was the deciding point where I was like, nope, no more of this. I, sh- I should tell you, the, the meeting before that, somebody had come around, an annuity wholesaler, and, and said, we're having a trip to the Bahamas if you sell X number of dollars of Hartford annuities. And I went to the next meeting, and all anyone would talk about in, the, in this, area, this regional area, regional meeting was, you know, oh, I, I'm, I put this much in Hartford annuity this, you know, this month and this much. And they were all comparing how much they put into the Hartford annuity. And, and I thought to myself, not one person has said one word about the Hartford annuity before this meeting, but this is all anyone's talking about right now. And I'm thinking it's because of that trip. That's weird. Then the next meeting I went to, people were talking about touchdown bonds and reminiscing about, oh, do you remember those touchdown bonds, those bonds from Canada? Yeah. Every time we sold them, we'd throw up our arms and we'd yell touchdown because we had, there were eight points in the bond. And I thought, oh, eight points. That, that was an 8% markup. Holy crikey. How how can you sell a bond with 8% markup in it? Well, it's a little easier because they yielded more back then. So you know, people didn't notice as much. <laughs> well, then. That'd be yeah, true. Exactly. But <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh. And then, then somebody else said, yeah, too bad they went bankrupt and nobody got their money back. That was, I thought, that's it. No more. I'm done. Now, I could have just been in the middle of a bad bunch, and I've known plenty of Edward Jones brokers who are amazing people. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Terrific. That was it for me. I was young. I was naive. I got into it just to help people, and then I was exposed to this part of the industry, this little sliver, and I thought, nope, I can't, I can't do this. 
So I had been talking with a woman who I had worked for at, at the bank, and she had gone to work for another bank brokerage firm, and she had been wanting me to come to work for her anyway. And so I called her, and I'm like, you know what? Is that position still available? And I went to work for her. So so what was that role like? Still doing more in business development, just hanging your hat at a different broker-dealer, you know, like hanging your shingle under a different broker-dealer at that point, or was it a different kind of role? It was a little bit different. It was more of a servicing bank brokerage firm clients and being a backup to the bank broker. And I did that for a couple of years and I actually liked it very much. And it was a salary plus bonus situation. And I was, I was happy with it. I really, really liked it. And then someone I worked with there that I liked very much, he went to work for Schwab. And every time he'd come back to visit us, everyone would hand him their resume. And then this was, I mean, this we're in the nineties, like this is the heyday of Schwab's in rapid growth mode, starting to really take over the world after having gotten almost 20 years of traction in the, in the discount broker realm, like great brands, huge company on the rise and rising national footprint. Exactly. The growth was exponential at Schwab. And everyone kept handing Scott the resume when he'd come back and visit. And he visited on a pretty regular basis. And so Scott said, hey, would you get me a resume? I said, Scott, you know, I'm one of those terrible people that just never keeps an updated resume. I just don't do it. I'm like, but thanks. I said, I really like working here because I was working with my friends. I really love this lady I worked for. I'm like, you know, thanks, but you know, no thanks. Well, I get a phone call from the branch manager at Schwab and he said, I've got a stack of resumes here on my desk, but I hear you're the one I want to have here work for me. Oh, good old recruiters. Got to feel flattering when that phone call comes in. Exactly. He's the branch manager. So I'm like, you know, I just thank you so much, but I just don't, I don't do resumes and I just don't put the effort in and put them together. And I said, I really like where I'm at. And he said, well, I heard that you don't like the commute. I'm like, well, that's true. (laughs) It's an hour and a half. I don't like that. And he's like, well, Clayton would only be 45 minutes. I thought, hmm, that's a good point. So I said, okay, I'll take, take the meeting. Well, I went and I can't tell you how amazing it sounded at Schwab and all the, the introduced email that um, people who work there and everything seemed so fantastic. So I went, I went and, and moved to Schwab, and it was it was as wonderful as as it sounded. Interesting. So, so it's kind of uh, like striking shifts. You, know, you you started out in the bank. You left the bank because you wanted more opportunity that you basically weren't getting there until one of the seven brokers retired or passed away. So you went to you went to Edward Jones, had success, but didn't like at least some of the coworkers and the the sales environment that you found yourself in, or I guess the the people who were very motivated by the sales environment you found yourself in. So so you shifted back into a bank environment with just people you were more comfortable working with, and then Schwab came knocking. So what like do you know, even at least in retrospect, like why did they come knocking? Like, what were you what were you doing at the bank at that point that you know the branch manager had a stack of resumes and said, "I don't want any of these people. I want Michelle because I heard about Michelle." I had given advice at Edward Jones, and Schwab was just starting to give advice. 
So they were looking for people who had been advisors before. And and in that context, that meant like what you had certain series licenses, you were actually getting paid separately for like planning fees and planning work. You you like you had a series sixty five and not and not a seven or not solely a seven. Like what what, what did what did experience giving advice actually mean in that context? It was the assumption that when I was at Edward Jones, I told people what which mutual funds to buy. So Schwab, before that, really had just been about servicing, and they were they were really very pride very put a lot of pride in the fact that we you know we don't give advice, we only give education, but we don't give you advice on what which funds to buy. Now they did put together a select list of here's what our analysts say we think will be you know some good mutual funds over the next quarter, but you know you couldn't sit down with someone and someone tell you, you know, here's here's three mutual funds that you should purchase and make a recommendation, solicited recommendation. It's an interesting distinction because, you know, now there's a lot of buzz about Schwab, all the, all the different ways they give advice, right? They, they, you know, they've got private clients and the CFPs and the branches and the robo platform and the, you know, CFP for $30 a month subscription thing, like all these different pieces. But the roots of Schwab, like, Schwab was a discount broker. Like the the founding of Schwab was basically we're going to we're going to use technology better than other wirehouse and brokerage firms so that we can drop trading fees and leverage technology to put other brokers out of business. And and it was kind of the technology plus human you disrupt the financial advisor business model of of the 70s and 80s, but it it was all like it, brokerage then was all order taking. Just if you know what you want to buy, Schwab is a discount broker that will get it executed for you at a much lower cost. And they could do it at a much lower cost because they didn't have to pay the outbound brokers to sell stuff. They could just take the inbound orders at a lower cost. So the whole phenomenon of giving advice in a firm like that, which happens in a lot of different ways today, like I, I get it. That That was a that was a monumental shift at the time, as well as Schwab's version of the shift from selling stocks to selling mutual funds. Right, right. They gave us a software program, a little tool to figure out someone's asset allocation and to help. So you'd sit down with someone and you'd ask them questions, basically risk, toler- risk tolerance questionnaire, and then it would spit out, here's your asset allocation model. And then the asset allocation model would help us figure out, okay, how much you need in large cap, et cetera, and help us figure out you know, what recommendations to make. Well, for some reason, 95% of the clients came up with what we called the blue hockey puck. And I can't remember anymore what that breakdown was because that was 20 some years ago. But I always remember this initial tool that Schwab came up with, their fledgling efforts at advice always generated a blue hockey puck. So it was, it was funny that, but it was just, it was their very first attempt at, at giving advice. And then it had emerged quickly. You know, uh, I was there also for the private client rollout as well. And then also, when I started at Schwab, I was a financial consultant. Because Schwab didn't give advice, they had the Schwab Advisor Network, where we could refer clients to 
registered investment advisors. So that exposed me to this idea of you know fee only financial advisors. And I, I sent I, I sat with clients through many many appointments. I sent many clients to these advisors in St. Louis and and got to see I don't know maybe over over the years a dozen different firms. And how they work, what the onboarding process is like, get to hear their investment philosophies and, and you know, uh, learn all about their, how they work. So take us back, if you can, to a little bit more of what the model was, at, at least back then. Like when you take this job in the 90s to be a financial advisor, financial consultant, I think they were calling them FCs then. Like what was that job? I mean, what did it... What did it entail? What were you doing? Like, what did what did day to day or week to week life actually look like in that environment? Well, primarily when it when I first started, because it evolved greatly over time. But when I first started, it was primarily helping people who walked in off the street who had tasks to do that were more complex than what could be handled at the front desk. You know, so the front desk did deposits, deposited stock certificates, et cetera. So really operational things that were a little more complex. And then opening accounts, cross-selling other accounts uncovering assets and our compensation was tied to net new assets so if if somebody and it we didn't have practices assigned at that point that wasn't to come until much later so you would keep track of the people that you sat with and if they brought in you know 500,000 but they took out 100,000 then your net new assets from that was 400,000 right cuz that's part of the the Schwab model and, and really most brokerage platforms, you know, they at the end of the day, there's lots of different ways that they can make money and and get paid. You know, they'll they'll make money off of trades, they'll make money off of money markets, they can make money on the back end from funds, uh, they yeah, I mean have manage account offerings, like all this different stuff. The goal for most of the platforms is just the more money that's on the platform, <laughs> the more money we can do something with in a way that ultimately we can provide a service and get paid. And so I, I know brokerage firms in in general have long focused on NNA net new assets. Is like that is the the driving key indicator. Like as long as we're expanding our reach of assets on platform, we will have some opportunity to provide a service and get paid. So just focus on getting the assets on the platform, and we'll we'll figure out later what in particular we're going to do for them. Right. And through that role operationally, um, it's really a great training ground. Uh, I'd say that I learned so much more at Schwab than I did at any of the other positions because you just never know it's going to walk in because handled so many estate processing situations, you know, and things where people walk in, they're like, we found these stock certificates in dad's house or, you know. uh, Because this was a world where like, even getting back to the 90s, you know, we'd we'd had you know, uh, electronic form investments for a while, but a lot of people still had still had stock certificates, still had physical paper stock certificates, or had direct held accounts with individual companies that administered their own direct stock purchase plans, and just moving and consolidating that stuff was a, a big a big thing in the eighties, nineties, even into the early two thousands. Yes, uh, you know, and uh, handling the the trust and the you know changing trustees and and you know dad passed but we never got that taken care of then mom passed and so stuff still in dad's trust and just handling all it so so 
you know, handling estates. And then another thing that Schwab, I think, I don't think they do this anymore, but they did it quite regularly. And I seem to be the one that always did in our branch. It seems like if you you start to learn something and it's a little complicated, then you seem to handle them all. But privately held equities. So, you know, every doctor in town decided to open up their own surgery center and, and um, you know, fund it through private equity. So wanting to do that in their IRA or just wanting to have that held in their um, brokerage account. And so, you know, working with our structured products department to, to have that uh, vetted and, and put into their account. Then also things like, you know, accounts where they're held as collateral for a local bank and just all kinds of, you know, just being exposed to these different things early in the career has just been so helpful over time. Interesting. Interesting. So, so you're just getting opportunity, just getting, I guess, exposure to all this massive, the stuff that happens in the real world with real people dealing with their investments and portfolios. So it it sounds like though, that's still a lot of that is I'll, I'll call it more just operations and execution oriented. So where did the advice components start start kicking in, or I guess just the investment discussions more broadly? So that would be interspersed. So, you know, you just had to take what you got and the volume of clients you dealt with every day was mind boggling, you know, for most. I, I, I so what, what, is that, what does that mean? Like what, so it would how much be, interaction would you have? You'd probably have 10 to 20 people that you worked with every day, but it, you know, we're not talking about a little 15 minute conversation. We're talking about somebody has been putting something on their to-do list and it's, it's at the top of the to-do list, but it never got to the top of the to-do list because it's such a hairy deal. But then finally they took a day off of work and they brought the giant packet of stuff to do to Schwab and they walked in the front door. That's the kind of stuff that you do or did when I was there because it's like, I'm going to get this done today. I, I finally came in and we're like, great, come on down. I'm going to help you get it done. So we're not talking about the stuff they could just walk in the front door and say, could right, you deposit that, this? That's that got handled desk. at the front desk. Like you you get the call from the back to walk up to the front. It's like, Mr. Jones is here and he has three shoe boxes of stuff. We have to figure out, call Michelle. Yes, yes. So, and it's your turn, and we just rotate through all the. So that's what you're doing all day, and then the follow up on that. Uh, but you're also discovering. Did you know I'm looking in your account here, and you've got, you know, fifty thousand dollars in cash sitting here, and oh, that's right. If I mean to do something, would you like to talk about that? So you know, we're giving advice on the account, or uh, you know, you've left your job and you've got a rollover here. You know what you want to do with that? Nope. Well, so let's talk about that. So it's just interspersed with everything else. But a lot of times, and think about that on in your own life too. You know, that's a lot of times things are important, but they're awfully hairy. So we know we have to set time aside specifically for it, and that's what a lot of these people are coming to us with. I'm I'm struck by this path as well like one of the other things that emerges in in the world of roles like Schwab and and particularly for where you'd come from at at Edward Jones is this is basically all inbound traffic inbound clients inbound prospects inbound need cuz Schwab was this rapidly growing firm with a huge retail presence that's doing its own 
direct-to-consumer marketing and talk-to-chuck campaigns and all of those. And and so talk to us about just the the dynamic, because you'd actually live both sides at this point from being in a bank where people come in with their questions, going to Edward Jones, where you're literally cold knocking neighborhoods with the flight plan so they know where to find you if you go missing. And then and then living in a Schwab world where 10 to 20 clients a day walk in the door to work with you to get help or servicing or advice or just support or whatever it is. And it's all inbound traffic because Schwab's got this mega brand and and marketing that they do. So I don't know, how, like, how do you just look at and think about that spectrum and what it means to get clients or have clients or build a practice in those different environments? It It is. I remember when I first went to Schwab, I could not believe how much money just came into the door every day. In fact, my very first day at Schwab, you know, you know you're the low man on the totem pole when you have to run an errand on the first day of work. So this is, as you pointed out already, in the era of, you know, hey, I placed a trade and I got to bring in my stock certificate to let the trade settle. <laughs> so uh, people bringing in checks and bringing in stock certificates. And so at the end of the day, you know, you had to settle the books and then put it in a UPS box and UPS would come by and pick up the box. Well, UPS, uh, the the person who does that wasn't able to get that done by the time the UPS guy came. And so that meant that the box had to be driven to the UPS store, which was you know not too far, maybe a few miles down the road. So the low man on the totem pole, Michelle, she's their first day. So she has to drive this to the UPS store. So I re- I'm like, okay, sure, no problem. So I remember as I drove this box of securities and checks on the way to the UPS store. I remember driving down Brentwood Boulevard and I look over at my front seat and I think, holy crikey, I'm driving $8 million of checks and securities <laughs> oh my on my God. first day of work <laughs> to the eight UPS mil- store. $8 million of stock certificates and checks. Nuts. Just nuts. The, the amount of money that would come in every day was nuts. Yeah. I'm sure there's there's a bunch of us that live in the brokerage world right now. They're just hearing this and going, "Oh my God, you're not allowed. You're not supposed to take possession of clients' stock certificates. That's custody." And like, it's like that's why because like you're driving down the road with eight million dollars of someone's assets sitting on your sitting on your front seat. <laughs> I was like, "Do I belt this in? What's? Oh my gosh! Holy I get a, smokes. If I get a car accident and get ejected from the vehicle, like, am I liable for that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Nobody hit me. Yeah. Whew. Goodness. So, and you know what? The other thing too is, so people would come in and they'd be like, I'm shopping you in Fidelity. And so, you know, you're, you're wanting to do, you know, arm wrestling with Fidelity to win that over. It wasn't as if it was going to come in automatically necessarily. And so, you you know, you were trying to win business, obviously. And, you know, and then, you know, we have in town, we've got, uh, at the time we had Scott Trade as well, which was headquartered here in St. Louis at the time. But our our goals for net new assets, they were in the neighborhood of like six million and eight million a quarter. And when I tell people that who were not in, you know, in, at Schwab or Fidelity, they it just boggles the mind. A quarter. Yeah. I mean that's that's you know, twenty what, twenty-four to thirty-two million dollars a year in nineteen nineties dollars, you know, even today, starring a lot of brokerage firms, it's like, can you bring in ten million dollars in your first year? And most people don't hit that number and don't succeed and don't stick around. And and 
24 to 32 was your baseline in 20 years ago numbers. That was just what people did. Yep. Yeah, it's crazy. So it, it, it paints an interesting environment, though, that to me is very is very striking overall. That so much of the industry has always hired and attracted and recruited people, bringing them in and is saying, you know, welcome to your job as a financial advisor. Now go find clients for yourself and and some people to sell stuff to. And you know, as you lived in the role at Edward Jones, like knocking for prospects or walking for prospects or cold calling for prospects, right? The, the, the mechanisms change, but the gist is pretty much always been the same. Like go find people to sell stuff to. And if they buy it from you, you'll survive long enough to stick around. So, you know, we had stock sales quotas and then annuity sales quotas and the mutual fund sales quotas and then, you know, AUM gathering quotas, but the, the system's always been the same. And it's, and it's so built around the only people who survive are the ones who can get good at finding prospects and finding business. And then you get these firms like Schwab, whose problem is we just need someone to give the advice and handle all the servicing for this flow of people that are coming in. Now, that was early, Schwab. Things changed right. dramatically over time. Well, su- success breeds competition, unfortunately. <laughs> Lots of competition. Lots of competition. So, so you start on this world where you're getting the inbound flow, but I'm struck like it doesn't sound like you joined for that reason in particular, because it's not as though you were actually having trouble getting business even when you were at Edward Jones and you had to go get your own clients. The challenge more was just you were actually good at getting your own clients, but you didn't like the other people who happened to be in the branch getting their clients with slightly different means and motivations. But it 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 wasn't a challenge in being able to get clients just not wanting to do it in that environment. And I guess at, at least the time not not knowing where else to look or shop or even figure out who would do it differently in in the mid 1990s. So right. Yeah. And so you bounce around a few firms and happen to land at Schwab. Yes, I went back the you know, I, I went back to what I knew, which was, you know, I worked for a woman that I, I loved, adored, I loved her ethics, and had fun every day at work. I guess, you know, I've never thought of this. This is almost like therapy. I'm I'm seeing a theme emerging here, Michael, and it's that I value fun. <laughs> I value fun and I'm, ha- yeah, I'm, I'm having fun now where I work. And yeah, so I never really realized that, but I, I must value fun. But yeah, I, I didn't care for, for what I was doing at Edward Jones, even though I was successful and I enjoyed the clients, but I didn't enjoy the environment. Uh, then I went to an environment at the bank I liked, but then I got pulled away to Schwab but, and I liked it. But, but you had the Schwab, you got the same same fun environments, but half the half the commute. Half the commute. Is, Got to have more fun nice. at home and less in the car. So I am curious, like what did what did compensation look like back then? How did it work? Like I know how it worked in the in the Edward Jones world. It was five point seven five percent multiplied by the amount of assets that you brought in. That Time math was pretty straightforward. That was your commission think, payout. Something like that. Times forty or fifty percent, something like that. Right, right, because they would keep half off the grid. So so, like, how did it work in an environment like Schwab at the time? Oh, let's see. I the I think it was salary plus bonus, and the bonus in the beginning was based on 
branch, the branch earned a bonus. And then we, every quarter we met and we figured out in advance what the, how we would divvy it up. Uh, and it was usually had to do with things like how many accounts you opened, net new assets, that sort of thing. Oh, and you know, I, th- I can't remember when exactly, but Schwab did have customer satisfaction surveys. And at some point that became part of the compensation payment, which is a good thing. Yes. I'm a, I'm a fan of that. I've, I've long been amazed that there aren't more, there aren't more firms in today's environment that just directly tie client satisfaction scores to, uh, to the compensation they pay their advisors. You know, there's just now a couple of platforms starting to come out like Nexa Insights that just does client, like client appreciation surveys so that you can actually figure out, you know, what your clients think, right? For a long time, we just didn't, we basically didn't have the survey tools. So you get Nexa Insights and Client Insights and a few tools like that now that at least make it easier to do it. But it's long surprised me that firms don't just as a standard process send surveys to clients that say, what do you think of the service you're receiving and tie the advisor compensation to it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Schwab did. And anything that was below a nine was bad. I remember that. But what I liked was uh, we could go in and we could see the comments that people wrote about us. And I really liked that. I really, really liked that. Well, you liked because your comments were probably good. Well. The, the bad comments were probably a little bit less of... <laughs> exciting to have those comments shared. Oh, goodness. So I am curious, and I guess just, I don't know, compensation dynamics. I feel like one of the challenges that's out there that, that frankly makes some people pause on systems and opportunities at, at, at large firms like Schwab is, you know, hey, the downside of going out on your own and hanging your own shingle is, you know, you got to go find your clients. You don't have a, a system like Schwab's national brand marketing that brings them in. But the good news is, you know, you participate in more of your upside when you go and hang your own shingle and do your own thing. A lot of these jobs in in large firms tend to be salary-based or maybe salary plus bonus, but not necessarily the same kind of upside dynamics as exist when when you build your own firm with your own clients. So and like you tasted at least some of that on the Edward Jones side. So I'm just curious, was that a was that a factor for you? Was that something in your head as you were looking at and evaluating opportunities? Well, actually, uh, Schwab's compensation changed dramatically while I was there because the Schwab model changed dramatically while I was there. So, so I was at Schwab and I was enjoying what I was doing early on, but I have this strong desire to teach. And and you know, I mentioned I wanted to get a, I wanted to be a professor when I was in college, and and that. That desire never really went away, and, and Schwab came out with their their website while I worked at Schwab, and I would teach classes on how to use it, and I realized I really love it, and so I <clears throat> wrote a job description and proposed that I teach investing, you know, stopping a financial consultant and just go full time to teach investing classes to clients of Schwab in St. Louis and proposed that to our regional manager where he said, I love the idea, but only if you do it for all of my territory, which was St. Louis, uh, Kansas City, and I think Springfield at the time. Well, it's 
so I did do that for a while and, and then it kind of ballooned and it became four states and someone got wind of this and they, they rolled a program out like it across the country and there, it eventually became like 32 of us. Um, but this became a pretty time consuming. I did it for a couple few years and it was, you know, traveling on the road constantly and I had a, a, a toddler at the time. So well, I. That'll take the fun factor <laughs> back down again. Yes, yes. Yeah. Whenever I'd pack, he'd watch me pack and, and he's so sweet and mild tempered and he'd watch me pack and he'd say, you know, you know, why are, where are you going? And I'd tell him. And so well, why are you leaving? And I said, well, you know, he said, what do you do? And I said, I help people. And one time I was packing and where are you going? And I was telling him what city I was going to. You know, what are you doing? And I have to go help people. And he said, why do they need your help more than me? And I stopped. I, after that trip, I called my boss and I'm like, I got something I need to talk to you about. He goes, I, you know what? That, I do too. And I said, well, why don't you go first? He goes, well, yeah, you know how we have you travel on the road three weeks a, a month. I'm so sorry, but we need to increase it to four weeks a month. I said, well, that makes what I have to say a lot easier to say. <laughs> And I told him, I, as much as I love, it was my favorite job I ever had in my life. I loved it, but I just had to, I had to give it up for my family. So I did. And so then I went into the branch and Schwab had changed in that two and a half years dramatically. And now they were, the, the branch role was really far more about uh, giving advice. And um, they- so that was- That was- Just for context, a part of that is like what- what changed in the intervening two two and a half years? Uh, I'm going to presume this is like late '90s, really early 2000s. Yep, this is right on the cusp of this is at the end of the tech boom. So the transition is like over the two and a half years that you were out there, uh, you're doing all this S investor education around how to use the website and tools. Like Schwab went digital. They they made the transition from discount broker to online discount broker, and suddenly branches didn't do what they used to do because all that stuff suddenly rapidly was getting done online instead. Yeah. And, uh, and the classes I taught, I taught 20 different classes. It was uh, how to build a diversified portfolio, understanding bonds, understanding stocks, market history, in addition to how to use the website. So it was, it was a blast. I loved it. Loved it. More than 500 classes. I should have kept track. It's somewhere between a 500 and a thousand classes. It was so much fun. So much fun. But yes, you're right. The the environment had changed a lot. Uh, the things that people were walking in to do, they really didn't have to do anymore. We used to do things like, can you turn on dividend reinvestment for me? Well, you know, people logged in and they click, they did it themselves. And it, yeah, and it freed us up really to do things that were so much more valuable, you know, um, having deeper, better conversations about things that really matter and will have a long-term impact, you know. So when I went back into the branch, I thought, wow, this is so exciting. And and it started bubbling up in me this interest in other topics, you know, healthcare and retirement and college planning. And so I started just reading and reading and reading and having deeper, better conversations with clients. And then as far as the Schwab, they rolled out private client. They s- decided to assign 100 families or households, I always called them families, but households in Schwab parlance, to each financial consultant. And our job was to build strong relationships with these families to make sure that they we retained their business with Schwab and then expand that relationship, that asset-wise, if we could, with Schwab. And, and well, this would be like, this was 100 private client 
households on on top of whatever else you were doing and responsible for. It's like, hey, here's like here's the equivalent of your A clients. Make sure you really retain and expand these on top of the rest of what you do? Nope. Private clients started out at Schwab, first of all, with just one or two private client representatives per market. And so, in fact- So much more of like a centralized one-to-many. Yes. You, you got you got the top 100 clients in this branch or across this group of well, it was five a, branches in the area kind of thing. It was a fee-based service. So it wasn't as if anybody was assigned. It was in St. Louis, we had two fellows who were the private client representatives and we could refer people to private client. And we, as a the branch representative, would get paid- a like a bonus for doing so and then the client would be assigned to that private client representative and that client would then pay an ongoing fee i think i think it was like 50 bips on fixed income and 75 bips on equity holdings and then that was a new relationship for that private client representative so back then at the very beginning there were only a couple of assigned private client representatives per market Eventually, it became where the financial consultants in the branch could have their own private client relationships. So, so this assigning I'm talking about of, I think I thought it was transformational for Schwab, frankly. This assigning I'm talking about of households. So before, as as clients would come in, they would just be assigned to next, you know, who's next on the line to help this client. So instead. Um, I don't know whose idea this was at Schwab, but I think it was brilliant. They said, okay, we're going to divide up the top, you know, uh, if you've got four representatives who work in the branch, the top 400 clients are going to be assigned to these four representatives. And we're going to put their name on their statements. We're going to put their photograph on the website. So when they log into the website, they'll see their photograph. And that person's responsible for keep for reaching out and calling that household and developing that relationship. Well, you know, if you had an account at Schwab for 15 years and you've never heard from anyone at Schwab before, you're going to have one of two reactions. You're going to be like, hey, I came to Schwab, so I wasn't pestered. That's that's one. And that's the minority. Or two, hey, I love Schwab. I've loved everything about Schwab. And now I get a person. Uh, I get all this extra service. I get a dedicated person. I don't just have to take whoever is next in the queue when I walk into the branch. Like This is a nice high touch service for me, which of course you're only doing for clients that have sizable assets in the first place on the platform. So it's just, uh, you know, you very directly go much higher touch with your most, most, most valuable clients. Yes, it was wonderful. I loved it. So now I'm getting to know the same people over it. And I'm a person who loves stories. I love to hear stories, love to tell stories. So now I'm chit-chatting on the phone with the same people all the time when they're coming in. I'm taking them to lunch. I had a budget. I had a credit card now to take people to lunch. I was loving it. But what happened is my 100 families very quickly became 300 families. And I was squashed. I'm like, holy cow, what happened here? <laughs> I went from having fun to being stressed. How did that happen? Was that just Schwab said, hey, this program's working, and they just kept adding more people to, to private client and expanding the thresholds? Or was this a like, 
hey, Michelle is you know doing her private client stuff and has great net new assets on her private clients. Let's give her more since she's doing so well. And like you just became a victim of your own personal success. Like she's doing well. Let's give her more. And oops, we crushed her. No. How how does that normally happen? It's Mrs. Smith works at Monsanto with. Bob Jones and Mrs. Smith is in love with Michelle because she takes her to lunch and does everything that needs to be done. And they have great conversations and they're at the lunchroom. And Bob says, Hey, I'm about to retire in a year. Oh, I know this girl, Michelle. She talks to me. You actually started building your own inbound client referrals. Yeah. Like crazy. And so I went from 100 to 300 and got crushed. And you know what? That's not a, that's not an unusual story. Yeah. Well, and, and particularly in that environment, I guess, so now we're like, we're in the 2000s, you know, online discount brokerage is in full steam. There's lots of websites where you can do the trade, Schwab.com, Ameritrade's big at this point, E-Trade's doing their commercials, you know, trading online is so easy a baby can do it. You know, you're, you, you've got this explosion of online service and suddenly the clients with the most service demands and the most complex needs are craving human beings. Schwab, you know, Schwab rolls out high touch human beings and boom, the growth takes off, which to me becomes an interesting metaphor for where we are today, which, you know, kind of another one of these cycles, the, the technology is getting better. Now it's robos doing the whole ass allocated portfolio instead of just Schwab.com executing the trade online and you know all this discussion of does the technology eliminate the humans and i think it's fascinating hearing you talk about this because you know what you're talking about is every every step that the technology got better like schwab rolls out the website and then you can do more things on the website and then more and more clients are able to be easier to self service on the website it led to all of the people who worked there doing more value add advice services for clients and clients reacting incredibly favorably to being able to get additional service and additional advice beyond what the technology was suddenly providing that made the humans from 10 years ago irrelevant. Right. Right. You just shifted what the value was. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, um, you said something interesting, and I have a viewpoint on it, and that is uh, some folks are nervous about technology and robo-advisors, and I have never once been nervous about that. I think technology is going to help human advisors be better advisors, and that, yes, there will be a small segment of the population that will be drawn to robo-advisors and will only use robo-advisors and not a human, but those weren't going to be your best clients anyway. And I find that this is something that needs high touch and needs, um, and that people crave in person or, or phone help with some of these really more complex issues. And even millennials, you know, are because people are like, oh, the millennials are going to just go to all robos. You know, they they're really needing help right now with the whole uh, having trouble figuring out how to balance their competing needs. So I I've never been concerned about that. So you're in this environment where Schwab is doing private client. You get to do them now as a direct financial consultant, as an FC. It's going really well. So clients start layering up and you you balloon up from a hundred households to 300 households and, and now you're starting to drown. So 
what what happens next? So when I started to drown, I approached my branch manager and told him, I never expected to make this much money. That's not what I'm it's not a motivator for me. I would like to pay out of my own income for an assistant. Can you make that happen? Well, he, I loved this guy. He was new to Schwab and it was new in our branch. And he had, he said to me, you know, this is a common thing in in where I came from. He had come from uh, A.G. Edwards, which had become Wells Fargo recently. And then he came to Schwab and he said, you know, that that happens in the wirehouses all the time. You, you make teams as you grow. Uh, let me talk to Schwab. And Schwab was so wonderful. And they tried and tried and tried to figure it out. And he's, he said, you know, they're, they're looking at hay points and, and, and trying to figure out how they could do that. But he, they just can't. They can't figure out how to make that work. And I told him, I said, you know, I think I'm just a little bit ahead of everyone else in this whole, my practice got too big thing. I think everyone else is going to you know, be just behind me. I said, you really need to figure this out. But I realized, you know, I'm I'm here at night. I'm working too much. I, you know, I want to. This happened before where the work got too big, and I and I needed to to back off a little bit so that I could spend time with my family, which is what I did with the with the regional investor education specialist job, and and gave that up so that I could, you know help my son more than help the, the the clients. And so I started thinking, oh goodness, I, I need to find a solution to this. So now at the same time, this interest in financial planning had been kind of bubbling up within me. Schwab had rolled out a very rudimentary financial planning software tool, really, really basic. But I had been using it with my clients quite a bit, so much so that it, it got attention of someone in San Francisco somewhere who reached out to my branch manager and said, there's a woman in your office, Michelle Clark, and she uses the financial planning software tool more than anyone else in the country. And we'd like the other financial consultant. I guess we were called, I don't remember what our title was there. I think vice president investment consultant when I, right before I left, but we would like her to hold a conference call for all of the representatives in the branches, the financial consultants in the branches on how she uses it, why she uses it, and what the benefits the clients get from it. And I I thought, yes, that's a great idea because I want everyone to be as passionate about financial planning as I am. Uh, So I did that. And I, you know, just that recognition that I had a interest in financial planning that was more than what other people had also is kind of an indicator that to me that maybe I need to to look at a path or an opportunity that would be more focused in that area than just on investments. And so this fact that the business was growing so much and I was having to spend so much time away from my family, which I didn't want to do, coupled with this kind of blinking neon arrow that Schwab headquarters had pointed me in. You like financial planning a lot. <laughs> but, we have the data to prove it. You literally <laughs> like it more than anyone else. else here. <laughs> <laughs> anyone else made me think, hmm, why don't I why don't I look into that? 
And it was just kind of a, a happenstance conversation that I had with a gentleman who was in our active trading department uh, that I'd known for a long time. I'd met him as I was a regional education uh, specialist. He was in town visiting us doing a, a workshop on uh, active trading for some of our active trader clients, and we were chit-chatting. And, and he told me about this woman named Cheryl Garrett out in Kansas City, and I thought, I have a reading addiction, a serious reading addiction. And I thought to myself, hmm, Cheryl Garrett, I remember reading about her in Consumer Reports a year or two ago. I need to go look up that article again. And that led me to the Garrett Planning Network. And when I read it, now with this these fresh eyes and this fresh need of, of a new solution to this problem of needing to make a, a transition in my life, it just seemed like all the bells went off. Ah, you know, open your own firm, Michelle. That's, that's how that led to creating my own RIA. So talk to us about that transition. I mean, there's so much that happens there. You're... you're you're going from, you know, big corporate environment to, you know, hanging your own shingle as a solo and 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 no more big company brand name. You're you're changing business models cuz you know Garrett's model is hourly financial planning. So I mean, you're going from you know having lived in a world of net new asset flows for for 10 plus years to suddenly being, you know, fee for service and charging per hour of your time. You go from, as you said, like making more money than you ever thought you were going to make to zero. <laughs> That's what happens when you go and start from scratch. Like, talk to us more about what's what's going on in that transition. You know, you you made the comment earlier, like the the work got too big, so I had to back off. And I've seen a lot of advisors over the years that never managed to make that shift. To back off. Not that's necessarily like going out on your own and hanging your shingle and starting from zero again, but just figuring out how to make a transition that has what often can be a very big income shift along with it. Yes. Well, I I should start by saying I have the luxury of being able to make that income shift. Part of it was having started saving so early in life. The other part of it is I, you know, I am married. And so having a two income household does give you cushion. You know, I started putting my babysitting money in stock when I was younger. So, you know, and then when I got out of college, I knew right away to start saving money. So that's, that is the advantage that some people who want to start a business don't have is, is not, not knowing about the saving early on. That is the nice thing that we have as investors. You know, we know that early on. I'll, I'll admit even from my, you know, my trajectory in career as well. Like I, I did a similar thing. I made a, a shift from being full-time in the advisory firm to deciding to, you know, go out largely on my own and, and spend a material portion of my time doing, you know, what now ultimately became the speaking and the blog and the newsletter and all this different stuff. Uh, ironically, I think almost the exact same time you did in 2008. And it was the same kind of driver or or like it was the same kind of path for me that I had lived rather inexpensively through the early years of my career. And so as my income went up, as I kind of, you know, climbed the career ladder and, and earnings opportunities, my, my income went up and my lifestyle just didn't move much. And so I ended up saving a lot of money and had pretty low personal costs and overhead. And that's what made it possible 
for me to be able to do the leap and the shift in the first place. Like it was, it was mostly about the the financial stability of having low expenses and a lot of savings, much more so than like the vision of the business opportunity and what it could become and all that stuff that sounds neat, but it's just not feasible if you don't have the the financial foundation in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing too is, you know, when I was telling my colleagues uh, at Schwab what I was going to do, you know, they were stunned. And one person said to me, why would you give up why would you give this up? And I said, you know, you're right. I, I really love this and, and I love what I'm doing here. I said, but I'm starting to feel this pull. You know, I've I've also kind of mentally all all along been making you know lists in my head of you know, I really like how we do this, but if I were to do it, you know, if I were to do it on my own, I would do this instead. You know how you kind of if you have an entrepreneurial heart, I think you kind of think that way. I like this and this and this, and I would change that. And you just start accumulating those lists in your head, or at least I had. And then when I started thinking about creating something on my own, I just started feeling this real pull towards, ooh, this would let me do that. And I never really had any fear at all. And I think it's because, you know, my mom, she started her own business when I was in seventh grade. So I just grew up that whole time. She still has a business. I still you know, I just had that modeled for me that it's just a no- normal thing. You know, my mom's a woman who owns her own business. No big deal. And when I married my husband uh, for the first several years of our marriage, he owned his own business. So it's just, you know what, my dad, when I was really young, <laughs> he owned a business and, and the, uh, myself and my two brothers, we'd go out behind the business and we'd play with the stuff in the backyard, in the back of the business. And I can remember kind of playing with the stuff back there together. And so it just was surrounded by it. It just seems like such a normal thing. But it was when I announced it at the, you know, at Schwab to my colleagues, that was the first that I realized, oh, maybe this isn't something that everybody does. Um. <laughs> Whatever else is like, you're doing what and why? Like, <laughs> are you insane? But yeah, it's, it's very exciting times. How did you explain or rationalize it to them? Because I think they're, if you did the same thing now, I'm pretty sure they would still tell you you're insane and what are you doing? <laughs> You know, I I think sometimes it's it's just a different perspective, but it is it's good to have all different types of people in the world. And one frustration I have had as a business owner, working with other people who are also business owners and who came to me as they saw my 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 RIA grew and grew and grew and grew and you know more and more clients and and they would be you know how do you get so many clients I don't understand and you know can you help me with that I'd be like sure of course because you know I live from an abundance standpoint there are far more potential clients out in the universe in the world than there are advisors so yes I'll help you get clients and my frustration came from realizing oh wait a minute it took me a long time to realize this not everyone is meant to be an entrepreneur they like the idea but the work that's required is not what they're wanting to do i see so it's just so i don't think you can explain things to everyone and and if they think that it's insane and it's nuts i'm perfectly fine with that the it does strike me though that you know you're talking about the the list you were making in your head of like, you know, if I was ever on my own, I would probably do it this way instead. That one of the things I've long observed of just advisors who decide to make that leap to independence, right? The the 
the ones who take the path like you and not like your coworkers who said you were nuts. Part of the distinction is that I find what what drives that shift to independence far more often than just the economics, which which frankly look pretty horrible when you walk away from your old salary or opportunity to to start over from zero. I find for very few advisors, is it actually the like, I want to build this business entity I can sell someday, right? Sort of the other end of the economics. And I find overwhelmingly, it basically just comes down to some people after spending a certain amount of time in the business and getting certain amount of experience of doing things however they do it at their firm, they get to this crossover point that says, you know what, I think I'm pretty clear now that I there's just a certain group of people I want to serve in a certain way that I want to serve them. And I'm just going to go do that now. And and that it's much more driven by just a desire to serve who you want to serve the way you want to serve them. And the economics then tend to follow as opposed to making shifts for the purpose of the economics alone. I would say, I would predict that the people who shift to serve a certain type of client a certain way would be far more successful than the people who shift because they want to chase the economics. Because you have to really muscle through a period of no economics to get to the the good economics. So talk to us, though, about, like, you didn't just shift the business and say, hey, I'm going to hang my shingle and start over. And you know, there's certain things about how we do business that I want to do differently when I do my own thing. Like you completely leaped into a new business model as well. Like it's not like you went to the make an independent firm to do the assets under management model. You basically were already doing a private client. You would just get to use your own tools and technology and do it your way. You you went from a private client model to Cheryl Garrett's hourly model. So were were you hourly only? Did you actually do a blend of hourly and some of this AUM model you already knew from private client world? Like what what did it look like and and what was going through your head on on just business model and how to structure it? So I in 2008 is when I joined uh, Garrett Planning Network, the hourly model network. And what really appealed to me was the fairness of it. So one of the the things I didn't care for at Schwab is it had moved away from that original feeling of whoever walks in the door, we sit with you the whole time until you get done what you need to get done, and I will match your effort, client. You, you know, you put some time in here to get what you needed to get done, and I will match the amount of time that you have invested in getting this task done or getting your investment ideas put together, whatever you need. And it evolved instead, unfortunately, by the time I left, to we have to evaluate you know, the ABCD client. And if the C client walks in the front door and wants some investment recommendations, uh, we evaluate and say, okay, well, you know, they, they get the recommendations. You know, we wouldn't turn anyone away. That would be unkind. But, you know, they really only get about 10, 15 minutes of time. Now, the A client, who was one of those clients that came to Schwab because they never wanted to be pestered, 
and they will not return any of our phone calls, we have to still keep after them. We have to keep offering them baseball tickets and wine tasting event invitations and call them every six weeks. And and I'm thinking to myself, this doesn't make sense to me. And so what I what appealed to me about the hourly model was the fairness of it. So if you have a very complex client, they're going to pay more because they're the complexity demands that there's more time involved than somebody who's smaller. But they get the same level of expertise, credentialed assistance, and they as the client get to determine how much help that they need, not, well, you're not worth as much and you're worth more. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, to me, it's one of the interesting challenges that I've seen crop up in a lot of advisory firms when, when, I mean, we do the same thing, I think on the independent side that Schwab was doing. It's, it's frankly what everyone I feel like started doing in the, in the two thousands, which was this whole exercise of you have to segment your clients so that you give the most stuff to your most clients, which is quote fair because they're paying the most. You have to do less for your lower end clients because you're not trying to be mean to them, but just literally the economics do not hold if you're doing the same amount of work for a client that generates drastically less revenue. So just you will run a better business if you, you know, quote right size the time and effort you're spending with the amount of revenue and profits that the client drives. And, you know, certainly from the purest business sense, it's hard to argue with that and and kind of the economics of that and aligning revenue and cost structure and, and cost to service. But the phenomenon I've long observed in our financial planning world in particular, because often the primary motivator is much more around helping and serving people than literally the economics, although it happens to work out well if you serve people well in this business, that you know, when you take people who are wired to help others and you say, this person doesn't have as much money, you have to help them less, you have to help them less. Either it at best, it doesn't sit well and it feels awful, or at worst, you basically blow off the instructions and give the client the same service anyways. And, and then ultimately, that creates tension and challenges in the firm because now you can't handle as many clients because you're doing the same work for your C clients as your A clients, but how can you not give it to them because they're human beings and you want to help them? And and it it creates, I find often these challenges where say, you know, for helper-oriented firms, segmentation and practice rarely lines up with the theory because they just can't bring themselves to serve their smaller clients differently or less. The And the other challenge was the compensation structure at Schwab, which is actually posted on their website, didn't allow for an effective segmentation. It was just an arbitrary, well, you know, this, they're not in your practice and they have a smaller dollar balance. It's like, uh, but this guy has a giant dollar balance and he will simply not engage. I, it, it just doesn't, I don't know. So, so the appeal to you then of going to the hourly model is, okay, we're going to simplify all this stuff. I'm just going to get paid for my time. The client can decide how much of my time they are or are not going to engage in this manner. That That's one thing. And that isn't even really the major thing. What I liked is I was moving away from in only dealing with investments and going to true financial planning. 
And at the time, true in-depth financial planning was really only available through Alliance of Comprehensive Advisors and the Garrett Planning Network. And I just liked the Garrett Planning Network better. That's all it really came down to. So so you join Garrett Planning Network. Part of their model is just literally like helping you, helping give you the, the you know, consulting and guidance of what you need to set up your firm and get registered and how you run this business model and how you get clients and and so forth. So I guess you you engage Garapline Network Services, they help you get launched, and now you're underway as Clark Hourly Financial Planning. Yes. Now I took a couple of years where I got my CFP, Series 65, CRPC. And part of that too is because I had a child who was in preschool. So I thought, you know what, I'll take, I'm not, maybe it wasn't even two years. I think it was like a year, but I had a child who was in preschool and I thought, you know what, I've, I've worked so much. I think I'm going to go ahead and uh, spend this last year before he starts kindergarten and focus on getting all these designations and I'll spend that time getting the website designed, getting all the ADV stuff worked on and get all those licenses all under my belt. And so I did not meet with any clients or do anything in that period of time. And then the the day he started kindergarten is the day I turned in my ADV to the state. So what was it like at that point trying to build an hourly business? You know, you'd you'd spent 10 plus years in the Schwab world where it was either heavily inbound or then eventually it was heavily referral-based, but it was referral-based because you already had the clients, which may have come from inbound. So like you're starting from scratch, there's no inbound and there's no referrals because <laughs> there's no one to refer because you don't have any existing clients who can refer you. you know, you'd done cold knocking door-to-door almost 15 years prior at Edward Jones. So what was the like? what was the business plan as you get launched of how you're actually going to get clients and make this thing work. So I uh, also in that time period before I uh, submitted my ADV, I did a lot of research on SEO and uh, blogging, social media. And so that was one area of marketing that I wanted to focus on. A second was while I was at Schwab, Schwab had the Schwab Advisor Network, where you could refer clients to the fee-only registered investment advisory firms. And they typically had minimums of a million, some were half a million. Um, Actually, the day that I walked out the door at Schwab, I came home and I already had job offers on a couple of my from a couple of those on my voicemail. Yeah. So I had good relationships with the the firms uh, here in St. Louis. And so I contacted them and, you know, told them what I was doing and, and asked them if they would refer clients that didn't meet their minimums to me. And many said, yes, of course. And in fact, I think they all said, yes, of course, but I got referrals from many, but not all over time. And so and that, I was getting referrals from the- there piece that's so often overlooked for newer advisors getting started is just, you know, successful advisory firms because they have their own capacity challenges, often migrate up market over time, have, you know, higher minimum fees or higher minimum assets. And, you know, someone else's C client or or just outright reject client doesn't make our numbers can still be your A client when you're getting started. And that there's a huge opportunity 
for just building relationships with other large firms with higher minimums and you know finding a kind way to basically say hey i i would love the cast offs that you literally don't want anyways but this is exactly who i want and i will service them well and i will you know make you look good for having referred the person to me Exactly. And then that actually that starts snowballing. Um, so those folks have their own referral partners, CPAs and, and attorneys. And I started getting referrals from their referral partners. Right. Cause you know, then then they get a referral. C- CPA friend calls and it's like, hey Jim, I got this uh I've got this new client that I want to send your way. And then they talk a little and it's like, oh, that's actually really not a good fit for us. Hey, you should call Michelle, because you know. I want to keep the good relationship with the CPA, so I've got to help that CPA find a place to send their client. So if I can't take it, I can still keep the relationship with the CPA and defer the client. I'll just send it to Michelle. Michelle will love them. Right, exactly. And they know that I, they can trust me, that I'm not going to you know, try to build that relationship since it's I'll preserve that relationship for them. And yeah, it's all, it's all a good thing. I, I would really recommend that uh, if someone is starting up a new RIA that they really try to, to get to know their RIA community. So, so what what ultimately worked in terms of just making the business work and getting and getting traction? Like, was it heavily driven by this relationships with local RIAs? Was it ultimately that you you mastered the world of blogging and SEO and you had like a digital marketing thing? Where, where did clients come from? Like, what? What worked or what didn't work for you? Well, I would say that one of the things that was most important to me was tracking where referrals would come from. Um, and I asked for that on, so I had a document that I kept by the phone. And when, when people would call in, I would ask, that was part of the, the thing I would ask on the client intake form, it's on there. And then I had an appointment scheduling software tool it would ask there too. So this whole identifying where people are coming from, I think is a really important part of the business development workflows and and, and knowing that's important. So I but was It's a good point done. of just oh, how yeah. few advisors actually really do detail tracking on where their new business is coming from, like where their opportunities are actually flowing in from that's so you know what's what's working. You know, it's it's one thing if you have hardly any growth because you know I've finally got one or two prospects over the past few months. Kind of remember where they came from because they were scarce, so it <laughs> crystallizes in your mind. But but once you get a little bit of momentum going and the business is growing a little bit more and a little bit faster, like most of our brains just actually can't really keep track of all the different sources that prospects come to us and try to figure out which ones are working the best or working the worst or working at all. Like it's just, it's hard to, it's hard to just intuit the patterns when you're mired in the day-to-day reality of getting stuff done. And when you just actually track it and ask people where they heard about you or how they found you, it's amazing sometimes what you learn. Yeah. And you know what I'll tell you? So I had my, I've had my firm for 10 years I saw a dramatic change in consumer behavior, and it is when I first opened the firm, I would get referrals directly from, so I'm a member of NAPFA, a member of Garrett, a member of Financial Planning Association. I have a profile on the Fiona Network because I'm a member of NAPFA. So those all have, you know, find a planner 
tools and then they can click a button and send an email directly. And then I have a, you send an email from my website um, or people can call me. So I used to get from those find a planner sites, a direct email and it would say, I'm interested in, you know, help with retirement planning, please call me or, or email me, whatever. That would happen in the beginning. But over time, I typically just get it from my website or a phone call. And then when I, on my intake forms, I have, they can select all of the ways they heard about me. It's not a, I hate those drop down menus where you only get to pick one, even though it might be three things that pertain. So, and I'm very electronically oriented. So my intake form is also a electronic form. So it lets you pick all that pertain. And so what I found over time, the consumer behavior, while they used to maybe just go to one, find a planner tool and use it and just send you an email. Now they're, they're doing thorough research on the internet before they call or, or reach out to anyone. And so it'll say, I heard about you on FPA and NAPFA and Garrett and, and so on and so on. So I am, I think that people are now using the internet to do some thorough and deep research before they call you and they're just going to call you right from your website. Well, and the thing I'm struck by in, in, in general is that, you know, as much as we talked about a lot of the, the find an advisor search tools, like the various platforms that you mentioned for almost all of them, the primary or often literally the only way you actually search is enter your zip code and we'll show you advisors in your area. And at like at some point, if that's really all the consumer cares about, they can just type into Google financial planner and the name of their city <laughs> and get the same result that, you know, I, I've seen a number of advisors that have had a lot of success with, you know, inbound traffic off their website and, and leveraging SEO and and you know their niche is just they're the only comprehensive fee only financial planner in their area not to knock other models but we don't see a lot of people searching for broker in city name we see a lot more like searching for fee only financial planner in city name cuz the media has pushed a lot of that out and you know if if you're the only person in your area that does that thing just people type financial planner city name or fee only financial planner city name and a moderate level of you know location optimized SEO and claiming your business on Google places is often sufficient to start driving that stuff because the the find advisor platforms aren't actually adding much value at at best they end up doing what I think you observed which was they find you in local search then they vet you online if they vet you online they may go to the other sites because they're trying to check out more about you but it doesn't necessarily originate advisor in zip code. They can do that directly. Yes. Yeah, I agree. One of my search or one of my uh, how did you find us dropdowns is internet search. And that is very often selected. And another one is found you in an article. I'm surprised how often that one pops up. But yeah, you're right. And I think that's a good way to describe it too. They find you in these tools and they vet you online. So tell us how the hourly model worked for you you know you did this for 10 years like what happened how did it grow you know 
How many clients did you get up to? Like, how did revenue grow? I mean, what did it look like as a as an experienced hourly planner? Well, you know, it started off slow. I think the first year I had eight or ten clients, and then the next year probably double that, and then the third year I realized, holy crikey, I need some help. So I I had a, a person that lives here in St. Louis. Uh, come on board. And I never had employees. Every person I brought on board, I brought on as a contract employee. But so I brought on somebody. Oh, you know what? Actually, it was year two that I brought on somebody. Now that I realize it because we, we recently joked about in 2012, we brought on Terry. 2014, we brought on Brian. 2016, we brought on Debbie. So we said in 2018, we needed to bring someone on. So it was 2012. So, so it worked out very well in some aspects and other aspects it didn't work out well. One of the things that that came out of the experience that was just marvelous is had monthly calls with a small group of women that are RIA owners. Uh, there are about five or six of us. And we talked every month about um, like business ownership items. It was kind of like an informal investment committee. We discussed investments that we were using and some were the same as others and others were not discuss financial planning cases that we're working on so we could collect input and, and resources to help out with that case. We, we meet up once a year in person at a financial planning conference and most recently was in May at that Retirement Income Summit. So that, what, that was just phenomenal. That was a great resource in addition to the normal resources you had at Garrett. Also, what worked out really well is through that ex- exponential growth that I had as far, it felt like it was very heavy growth. I typically would handle about 90 or so projects a year toward the end there. Total all in number of clients over the years that I ended up working with, you know, when I go back and I count all the client files that I had, the electronic client files, it's uh, just under 300 is because of that fast and furious pace of, of the number of projects you're working on. I'm a very system oriented person you know, we really forced us to have to work with workflows. Uh, So that was something good that came out of it. And I I discovered that really the workflows come down to three different types of workflows for us, business development workflows, operational workflows, and then the financial planning or client meeting workflows. And and that was really what got us through. So what does that mean? Can you, when you talk about like operations workflows or financial planning and, and meeting workflows? Like what what exactly were they, were you doing or building or creating? So it all is based on the how the client moves through your relationship. So as far as the, the first touch from the client when, or the potential client at that point, when they reached out to us, you know, they were a prospective client. And so we had an, a prospective client inquiry workflow that the administrative assistant did. And then a prospective client, once they've sent in the confidential questionnaire, there was a, a workflow that went with that. And the prospective client, once they scheduled the Get Acquainted meeting, there's a workflow for that. And all those three workflows... Each time they do a thing, it kicks off a series of tasks. Right. And then the series of tasks, plus there is uh, a series of even scripted phone messages to be left, scripted email templates to be sent for follow-up, and then protocols for how often follow-ups are done and who does the follow-up because we don't want to pester too much and we really didn't need to. So it's like, let's just just do a few 
touches. And then if we don't hear back from them, you know, they're done, but then let's put them on the email list. And that's how we're going to stay in contact with them. But if they do move forward, we do hear from them, then this is where we go. And it just takes, I always would say, I don't, I, I like thinking things through but I don't want to think things through more than once. There's no reason for that. And what did you use to build and track all of these things? Well, that's interesting. Uh, When I was at Garrett, I read this book called The Checklist Manifesto. Have you read that? Yes, yes. Uh, One of my favorite books. Absolutely love it. Yeah. Yes, me too. One of my all-time favorite books. So I read that book and I presented at the Garrett conference on that book. And then at the end of the uh, my presentation, I said, if anyone would like, I'd be delighted to do a six-month series of conference calls guiding people through creating workflows for their practices. Um, I don't believe that we can create one workflow that would work for every practice. That just is not feasible. But I would be happy to walk people through the process that I use to create my office's workflows so that you could create your own for your office. And it really, and we did it and it was so much fun. But I'll tell you, it was really low tech the way I created them originally. And then we put them into our CRM. And the way that I created them originally, every time I did something, I wrote it down either on a piece of paper and kept it in a certain spot on my desk, or I also opened up an Excel spreadsheet, and each tab or worksheet at the bottom, I gave it a different name. And when I would do something, I would quick like a bunny go type it into that open Excel spreadsheet that I had open all the time. And if I didn't have time to do that, but I didn't want to lose the thought or task, I would write it on that piece of paper, and then I'd go back later and add it. And so it created this Excel spreadsheet of workflows that we eventually put into Redtail. And my life learning lesson is you're never done with your workflows. They're always getting tweaked over time. Interesting. But that, that's an interesting process of just literally, as you're going about your day-to-day world anyways, and literally doing things, just take one extra minute to scribble down the notes of the things you did and the steps that were there. And then when you get a little bit of breathing room later, you know, in the day or the week or the month, go back to your CRM like Redtail and figure out like, how do we actually add this as a workflow in the CRM? And and then how do we trigger it? Yep. Yeah. And I have a saying and it is done is better than perfect. Because if you try to make something perfect, you'll never start that task. Or if you get started, you'll never finish it. And you know, it doesn't have to be perfect especially with these workflows, because they are going to change over time. You just get them in there and start using them. And it's so much better. So what did the what did the hourly model look like for you by the end? I mean, obviously, like the name hourly kind of literally implies <laughs> building billing by the hour and, and, and charging for your time. You framed this as by the end, you were doing 90 projects in a year. So what was a project like what how were you offering planning because it sounds like this was more chunks of hours in the form of a project as opposed to literally just come on into my office and I'll I'll bill you for my time that's right and it never really was it was very rarely come into my office and I'll bill you for my time so what what were projects like what did what did you do how did you price them what was typical So someone would come in, uh, so toward the end, someone would come in and let's say they were a new client to me this year. 
we'd have our get acquainted meeting and uh, I'd look at all their, we'd have our conversation about what they need, identify their questions they wanted answered, identify what topics that we want to cover. Let's say it's investment portfolio recommendations, consolidation and retirement planning. Uh, Let's say that they're not close to retiring because that gets really complicated. And so that would probably run in the neighborhood of you know, 13 to 20 hours, just depends on what the situation looks like as far as their investments. And the hourly rate's 220. So that'd be probably $2,800 to you know $4,600 is kind of the range that I'd normally see. And sometimes I'd charge people 25, 30 hours, depending on the situation. You know, I had people, sometimes I had people have $25 million, $5 million, and I had people who had $700,000. I had the whole range. So, I mean, 90 projects at three, $4,000 a project and up. I mean, this was, this was a business doing hundreds of thousands of dollars a year of, of hourly project-based revenue. Well, that's if they're new to me. If they're coming back, this is a challenge. So this is one of those life things that if I had it to do all over again, I got some bad advice early on from from the couple folks in the network who said, oh, I don't think an, an annual review should be any more than a few hours. But honestly, and then I'd be like, well, it's taking me more than a few hours. Oh, you'll get faster. Well, so I have some you know, clients who are returning who I'm only charging a few hours. Well, I would slowly, you know, it's taking me five and six and seven hours to do their annual review. So I slowly would say, okay, well, this is taking me five hours and six hours. And I'm thinking it's not because I'm, I'm slow because it's taking me that much and I'm charging, you know, existing clients this much. So I'm going to raise a little bit. Oh, Hmm. Well, okay. I'm like, I'm going to add another half an hour. Well, still, I'm way undercharging some of the long, long, long-term clients. Oh, because the problem was essentially you, you kind of flat feet out of the gate. Like, hey, a renewal costs us whatever, uh, you know, uh, nine hundred dollars, which is about four hours worth of stuff. And then when it turns out to take six or seven hours, now now you're way underbilling your rate. But you told the client it's nine hundred dollars for a renewal, so. If you even try to take it from nine hundred to a thousand, they get grumpy. Never mind that some of them it might be fifteen hundred dollars given the amount of work you're doing, but they're anchored on the lower number because you quoted that up front and now you're stuck with it. Exactly. And I have such a tender heart. My um, administrative assistant, she's always like, Do you want to borrow my backbone? <laughs> I am just so tenderhearted. So now I have no problem asking people for money and telling, okay, it's time to pay up. And, you know, uh, you have, did you bring your checkbook with you? And here's what it costs. But when I'm quoting a fee and I can see that, ooh, you know, they don't have a lot of money or, you know, I've heard this sad story, I might, you know, drop some hours off knowing, you know, I'm going to eat that. I just have too tender of a heart. It's not a good thing in this kind of business model. But you're right. It's, you know, uh, I'd say the revenue, the gross revenues were in the $250,000 range. So, so how would you do it differently if you had like a clean slate now? For, for someone starting out, I would just know that it, it, 
it takes more hours than you would realize. And don't listen if somebody tells you you'll get faster. I'm a very efficient person. And, and so I should have realized that sooner on. But by the time I was um, the last few years, I was charging, you know, closer to the hours I was spending. Okay, just and just don't be afraid to charge for the actual hours you're spending. Yes. I, yeah, that whole quote in advance thing, I, that just doesn't work for me for some reason. Yeah, so you sit down, you have a get acquainted, you quote in advance. Some people do a range, but even the range would not have saved me in, from the early years quotes. But towards the end, I was, you know, I was quoting, quoting right. So that's good. Now, I know you've made one further shift because the top of your business card does not read Clark hourly financial planning anymore. So That's right. what's changed for you now from where this business was, where you grew to 250 plus thousand of, of hourly and project revenue to doing something different? So I have recently, it's about two months ago, transitioned my firm and aligned with Acropolis Investment Management. So what does Acropolis do? Like, is this tucking your hourly firm in, in a larger environment? Is this a shift in business model? Like what, what led to this transition and and what are you doing now? So I not really officially tucking in, although I have used the word plug in, which is a less passive and more active terminology. But I, my administrative assistant and I have both moved over here, and uh, I did have, when I had my own firm, I had a handful of investment management clients that did pay an ongoing AUM fee to do investment management, and I've brought those clients over with me to Acropolis, and then I've slowly been contacting or actually reacting to people leaving messages at my Clark Hourly Financial Planning firm, calling them back and letting them know about this transition, and then just really surprised at the large number of those clients that even though we're not doing hourly planning here at Acropolis, only doing the investment management for an AUM fee, they're coming over to maintain that relationship. Interesting. So so this transition was essentially a, a business model transition. You are moving from hourly to an AUM model now? Yeah, that is true. Although I did have some AUM. I had, gosh, I guess about 14 clients that were AUM at my other firm. So what, what led to the decision to move away from the hourly model after having built it for 10 years? You know, I have this um, unfortunate history of growing too large. I had just gotten to the point where I had grown the firm to the point where I was working until 10, 11 at night. I was coming in on the weekends and I had kept adding people to the firm to try to help And I outsourced just about everything I could think of outsourcing. You know, I had a bookkeeper and an accountant, and I had a person who did the website, um, really outsourced everything I could think of, brought on all kinds of support staff. And the next step for me really was to find another me, another financial advisor. And I'd been thinking about my options and had talked with a couple folks. I also, because of this Garrett Planning Network, I had the opportunity to talk with other people who had gotten to this point and had moved past it. 
and uh, they were very excited for me. Yes, Michelle, you know, we've watched with interest and seen, you know, the the growth of the firm. And, and now you're at the point now where you're going to become the CEO of your firm. You'll bring on financial advisors and you'll pass your clients to the other advisors. And the way they talked about it, I thought, ooh, that's so wonderful. It's exciting. You know, I've 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 reached this this phase of my career that's that's you know prestigious and exciting and, and I'm I should strive for this. I but feel like the more I thought of, there's a butt coming. <laughs> yes, there's a huge, huge however coming. I I realized, you know what? They're telling me I need to pass my clients away. And and the more I I pictured that, I realized, but I love the clients. That's all I ever wanted to do. I want to chat and hear stories and tell stories and go to lunch and do financial planning and, and, and run the analysis. That's what I want. I want to talk about the results and, and, and the trips and, and how we're going to pay for the trips. And I don't want to pass my clients on to someone else. So I decided, you know what, as, as, I know I'm supposed to want to take the next step and become the CEO and rule the world. But in my heart of hearts, I know that I won't be happy when I do that. And so I, I've had all this bouncing around in my head and I was at a financial planning um, chapter meeting and I ran into a partner from one of those old Schwab advisor network firms that I used to refer clients to that I'd sit in on the meetings. And it was a firm that I admired greatly. We were talking and he happened to say, you wouldn't want to come work for us, would you? And I said to him, well, and he stuck his foot in that door and he did not let go. And he shared with, well, he very politely asked me, I ask you questions about your firm. You know, we talked very frankly and he made excellent case for for why it would be wonderful to come over here. You know, I could give up all of that business owner stuff that took up all the time, the IT, the, the HR, the bookkeeping, the compliance work. And then I could just, again, focus on the clients. And, I, you know, it took me nine months to, to mull it over because that's a big decision, giving up a firm that you grew. But oh, I'm just so much happier here. So happy. So, what surprised you the most about building your own advisory business? I always have high expectations for myself. So, I, it surprised me that it did take a couple years to get it to where I was able to start taking money out of the business, how, even though long, everybody told me that. How long did it even take? Even the accountant. I think it was two years. And, and, that's, and that's coming at it with. You know, 10 plus almost 15 years of experience in the industry and a track record of doing business development and cultivating referrals and even cold cold knocking in the in the Edward Jones days and it and it still took two plus years uh, most firms frankly I find it it takes three years before dollars really start to flow in any meaningful way so I, you, you did build you did beat the average at two but it's still a long time when you go back to zero and you're like, am I, am I taking any money out yet this quarter? Nope. This quarter? Nope. This quarter? Nope. Okay. But like maybe eight to 12 more of these quarters and we might get there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what, what was the low point for you? The, you know, the low points all seem to be the same and it is when I am spending way too much time at the office 
and and don't get to be and I miss the baseball games. I miss events with the family. You know, they're going out to dinner. They're doing stuff without me. That's what I don't like. That's the low points. Yeah. And did you know that they turn on the they turn the HVAC off at night and the HVAC is not on on the weekends and the lights get turned off at 11:45 at my old office building. Yeah. I learned that from experience. Yeah, things you don't actually want to learn the hard way. Yeah. I, I am fascinated though that just you've you've had this pattern of you know, being successful and growing and growing larger and then growing it to a point where you actually aren't happy because of where it's grown. And and just seem to have the ability to make these leaps and shifts and potentially rather significant disruptions to your existing business model and client base to I don't know, to 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 reset yourself or right size yourself back to something that's more comfortable. And I, I just I see so few advisors that are actually able to make that leap. They just most people I think get a little bit hung up or stuck on just Wherever they are, whatever they're doing, it's hard to see the world differently than what you're currently doing. Sometimes just even if you didn't do it for the dollars, the dollars get pretty good and it's hard to reset your your dollar number sometimes. But you just seem to have this ability or knack to have done this now multiple times through your career. Yeah, you know, I think part of it might be that I actually really like change. And I know a lot of people don't like change, so... That might be part of it. Is that I, I'm not afraid of change. I, I like it. It's it's an energizing something new for you, as opposed to a like, oh, oh my god, what am I doing for myself? Am I going to blow up my career, ruin my business, or all the other like shoulds we start burdening on ourselves? Yeah, it's it's not that I seek it out. It's not like I get bored and have to change because I was at Schwab twelve years, you know, and I had my firm almost ten years. Yeah, so it's not like I I have to have change, but it's like you know. I know a lot of people will stick with something because they don't like change. Well, that's that's not me. So what advice would you give to young advisors looking to become a planner and start a firm today? Like what what do you know now you wish you could tell you from 15 or 20 years ago? Yeah, so if you are thinking of an hourly model or even this retainer model like your XY planning network, I think that with technology being what it is, I would recommend not having an office space, but doing everything as virtually as possible. Because I'm one for relationships, but I think you can develop relationships with Skype and see the person or even, you know, go to their home if you're local and start with as little overhead as possible when you're starting your business. And and to your, you know, I'm in the same camp as you are as far as it's really all about your expertise. Develop an expertise in a certain area so that people will want to be your client no matter where they are. And so, again, that's another reason why you don't have to have the overhead of an office. So as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And one of the things that we always observe is is even just the word success means different things to different people. And so... You know, as we said, like you, you've had these series of several different successful trajectories, and then have made some of these big shifts and and taken maybe a, a step back to take two steps forward, or at least taken a step back on business to take a step forward on fun. But, but I'm wondering, just as you look at this at a personal level now, how do you define success for yourself? 
So to me, and I, and I think you really nailed it there, success is being able to have that balance where you don't let the, th- the things that you love pull you in too far one direction or the other. Fortunately, I love my work, but I also love my family and friends, so I need to have that balance. And success is doing what you need to do to be able to maintain the balance between the things that you love. And being willing to take the step to change it if it's really not working. And hopefully you're willing to to take the steps needed to change if you need to. Well, I, I appreciate you joining us, Michelle, on the on the podcast. Hopefully there are maybe a few others out there who have hit some of those similar points of not being balanced that will find this as an inspiration that, you know, yes, you really can reset the balance and yes, it, it, it really can work out on the other end to do so. But thank you so much for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. It's been my pleasure, and thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.